Hello and welcome to Beyond the Page, a Life is Story podcast. I'm Josh Olds, and today I'm talking with Dr. Susan Harris Howell, the author of Buried Talents, Overcoming Gendered Socialization to Answer God's Call. Susan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Now, just to begin, uh, so that people who haven't read the book can get an idea of what this conversation is going to be about, why they should read the book, uh, give us a general overview of what the book is about. Okay. Um, well, the book takes an exploration of the kind of subtle socialization that we've all received over the course of our lifetime um, in ways that tend to prompt men toward leadership and women away from it. And so in the book, I look at the kind of things, everything from the toys we play with as children, the media we're exposed to, the way we're talked to, the things that we learn in school, the way others treat us and talk to us and so on, that then by the time we get to be adults, will, without our even realizing it, have a great influence on whether or not we see ourselves as being leadership material or not. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, uh, toward the end of the book, we talk about what we can do about it to change things. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the big term to make sure that everybody understands is there in the subtitle is the term gendered socialization. And half the right. book, half the book is dedicated to explaining what that means, what that looks like in childhood, mm -hmm. adolescence, adulthood. There's a chapter for each of them. So to make sure we get off that we're, you know, everyone is clear, what does that term mean? Gendered socialization can mean a lot of things. It can mean anything that is as overt as our parents or teachers or the media telling us um, you're a boy you're a man, you need to be doing these things or you shouldn't be doing those things. Or because you're a woman or a girl, you should or shouldn't be doing a variety of things. But it also can be things that are very subtle. And this is really what my book focuses on because we're typically aware of those overt ways. But I look at very subtle gendered socialization. Like, for instance, the way our language very often will use the word he or him mm -hmm when referring to people who whose gender is not known. That would be a very subtle way that we might be communicating to girls and women that they're second class, that they're not the main attraction, that this is a man's world and that we're just here on the sidelines. So my book looks at gendered socialization as anything that happens that tends to channel us in a certain way, simply because we're a boy or a girl, a man or a woman. Mm -hmm. Now, I think that the follow-up to that uh, for some people might be is like, well, isn't in, isn't gendered socialization in some aspects a good thing? I think especially for children, as we're teaching the concept of gender, that boys and girls are different. Uh, and I think we see this in different play out in different areas of the culture. Uh, you know, shouldn't there be differences in how genders are treated? Well, um, I don't. I don't necessarily believe that we should. Um, there are differences, however, the differences that exist really are very minute. 
I think that what research has shown, and my book really doesn't get into this, so I'm not really an expert on this by any means, but there are so many differences even among a group of children that are all boys or you take another group of children that are all girls, that there are going to be a lot of differences even between the individual girls and the individual boys. So the differences that we see between boys and girls aren't necessarily as drastic as some of the ones that we see between individual girls and individual boys. So I don't know that research has really shown that there are differences other than obviously the physical differences. But I mean, in terms of the way we think, the way we feel, the kinds of motivations that we have, the way that we approach decision-making and so on, I don't know that research has ever shown that there's a difference between boys and girls, men and women in those ways, mm-hmm. other than the ones that we get from being socialized. So I don't know that it's necessarily that we should socialize boys and girls differently. Um, but really, um, where we get into the issue is that when parents and teachers and our culture in general treats boys and girls differently, that does lead to some pretty steep consequences for girls as they enter into occupations. So we know that they can be damaging, and it might even be totally fine in some situations. But in my book, I'm looking at the way that it, ways that it can be harmful. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of in in childhood or like early childhood in particular, uh, or you you can even go before that, and we have you know gender reveal parties. And right. so it seems like it's, a you know, culturally, it's very important. And, I you know, I think at the extremes of this, I have seen uh, gender reveal cakes. They're like, you know, guns or glitter. And it's like, why, you know, <laughs> right. You, you know, that, that's sort of on the extreme. I don't think everybody does that. But sure. even, even as subtle as like, you know, blue and pink. Uh, right. You know, and some of the things that you mention in the book, um, what are what are some ways in which in early childhood, uh, we see boys and girls being socialized differently. Okay. Well, for one thing, whenever, you know, we find out that it's going to be, you know, a boy or a girl, very often we start stocking up the toy room. And typically, boys and girls are given toys, for instance, where that will propel I hate to say propel, but um, prompt, influence little boys to take their interests outside the home. And we give little girls toys that influence her to see her place as inside the home. Like, for instance, we're more likely to get sporting equipment, trucks, um, some type of vehicle for boys, and we're more likely to give dolls, um, dish sets, kitchen sets, toy vacuum cleaners and what have you for little girls. So right away, what we do is we have started to socialize them as seeing themselves as being a be in the home, that's your that's your arena, or be outside the home, your time is better spent there. And so even that small thing starts to channel their interests in ways that we're going to see lived out in some pretty serious ways as they get to be adults. Mm-hmm. I think that it kind of brings us to the larger like issue of, of gender in general, I think, because um, 
as I've reflected on this myself, and I'm by no means an expert, uh, in general conversation, the the concepts of sex, gender, and sexuality all sort of get lumped together and conflated as the same thing, and that that really changes the conversation. It really affects the conversation. Uh, when we're talking mm-hmm. of, of gender and gender expression, uh, you're you're really talking about things that are very social and cultural. Mm-hmm. Uh, how much do you think that of gender expression is based just on social and cultural things? Well, there are no doubt um, some physiological biology that does channel children in some ways i don't i don't have any um any doubts about that however the research that i've seen and i've looked for it that tends to suggest that boys and girls come in with an inborn um i'm trying to think of the word an indoor and an inborn prompting towards certain activities, there really aren't very many studies that support that. We do know that because of testosterone, boys and men do typically tend toward aggression. And of course, certainly not every man is aggressive and not every woman isn't. But we do know that the level of testosterone has something to say with that. And oddly enough, one particular, it looks like a physiological difference, is that as early as the age of three, If you give a little girl and a little boy a target to aim at, little boys tend to be a little bit better than girls on average at hitting the target. We also know, for instance, that girls from early in life on up through college do show some, um, they're somewhat more advanced in verbal skills than boys are. Now, Apart from that, there aren't just a whole lot of research studies out there that have proven that boys are just naturally better at some things or that girls are just naturally better at other things. So without a doubt, physiology does play a part, and I, and I wouldn't suggest that it doesn't. However, what we do know for a fact is that the influence that we get from our parents, from our friends, teachers, our churches, music, books, TV, movies, and everything else certainly does try to prompt girls in one direction and boys in another. And then even people who I have read who will say, yeah, absolutely. For instance, boys do have more of a tendency toward aggression because of testosterone. We even see that teachers and friends and parents do fan the flames of that with the way they socialize their little boys. Like, for instance, be more likely to get sports equipment and vehicles for a little boy than they are a daughter, or maybe more severe reprimands for their daughter if she gets into a fight at school, and maybe a little more pride if a little boy can defend himself. So even in those areas where we know without a doubt that physiology has a hand in the in the behavior, we also see even then that culture steps in and tends to widen whatever natural differences there are between boys and girls. 
Mm-hmm. I, and that raises an important point. And this this isn't something this isn't something that you really address in the book necessarily, uh, but it's something mm-hmm. that I've been reflecting on. Uh, I, I read your book uh, right along with uh, a book called Gender Identity and Faith by Mark Yarhouse and Julia Sadusky. And it's actually right. also, also released from IVP around the same time that your book did. Uh, I'm interviewing right. Julia in about six weeks, so I'm going to ask her this very same question as well. Uh, mm-hmm. And it made me wonder if some of what's driving the feelings of gender queer individuals, people who don't feel they are, feel established uh, within social gender norms, uh, do you feel like the growth of those who consider themselves non-binary or gender queer is because they're pushing back against gendered socialization, this narrow conception of of gender roles that boys must do this and girls must do this and they're thinking mm-hmm. well i don't do that so i must not be i must not fit within right. this binary you know that's an excellent question and i wish that i had an answer for that i've, I've wondered that very thing myself and i'll be interested in seeing um the answer that that you get when you uh, when you interview her later um, I don't know. I've, I've wondered about that myself, and I've wondered if we provide more freedom for boys and girls to pursue whatever interests, whatever subjects at school or hobbies or after-school activities or TV shows or whatever that they just naturally feel inclined toward. Will that take care of or at least help to to um, to clarify things for people? And, and I wish I knew the answer for that. I don't. Um, and I, I really have tried in the book and you know, whenever I'm interviewed to uh, not overstep my area of expertise. And so I don't have an answer for that, but but it is a really good question. And if anyone is researching that now, that would be an incredible contribution to the field. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I, alas, I do not have the answer. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll ask the question together because uh, I think it, it is it's a subset of this conversation on gendered socialization and how we can feel comfortable, how we can feel comfortable as men and comfortable as women and then comfortable as Mm -hmm. as humans and, um, you know, be flourishing in the way that God created us and intended us to be, which may not necessarily be the places that culture or society wants to pigeonhole us. Sure. One of the things that we see, and this is, this is kind of why you wrote the book is that when when we do this gendered socialization, uh, it it doesn't end up in equality, and the the inequality always goes one way, or almost always goes one way. Right. Uh, what sort of inequalities? You've already kind of talked about some of them, but what sort of inequalities do we find coming out of gendered socialization? Well, for one thing, the mindset that it creates in men and women, boys and girls, and then later men and women. For instance, one of the the research lines of research that I talk about in the book is some research that shows parents and teachers are more likely to believe that if a boy does really well, say on a math or a science test, something that is very often stereotypically seen as a boy thing. Whenever he does really well, they're more likely to tell him, wow, you're really smart. And then if their daughter does well on one of those 
math or science test, something that is stereotypically thought of as a guy thing, they're more likely to tell her, wow, you really worked hard. And while both of those are compliments, And both are probably true most of the time. Usually if we do well on any kind of a test, it's partly because we're smart and partly because we've worked hard. But the fact that they give that, the different messages to boys and girls is very telling because if you tell someone that they did well because they're smart, what that communicates is that they're doing well is part of who they're is part of their essence, part of who they are. And then it's very likely to be repeated because if you're smart today, you're likely going to be smart tomorrow, next week, and next month, and so on. But when we tell a little girl that she did well because she tried hard, it communicates to her that it's not so much who she is, but what she did in this one situation. And so it communicates to her that the next time For instance, if she doesn't have as much time to study or if the subject is just a lot harder, that her inborn intelligence, the essence of who she is, might not be enough to get her through. So, for instance, how that could play out then is for whenever boys and girls get older, they go to high school, they go to college, they're in some classes that are going to be pretty tough. If the boy is telling himself, I can do this, I'm smart, and she's telling herself, I could do this if I had the time to devote to it, but I don't, so I can't, then that's going to have some serious ramifications for the types of subjects that she might major in, for instance, when she gets to college. And that will then open up or close off opportunities for her in certain occupations. Um, And we also tend to communicate, like I said, with the, the toys and gearing boys toward outside of the home activities um, and girls toward inside the home activities. What that can lead to that I think is pretty damaging is for a man then to just feel more comfortable being outside of the home and pursuing his contribution to the family outside the home. Very often what that will lead to are people saying things like, well, men are just more comfortable going out to work every day. Men just aren't comfortable staying at home. Or women are just better at being at home than men are. Women are just better at handling children or doing the washing and the cooking and so on, when really it's not so much that men are just better at this or women are just better at that. It's that they've been conditioned through decades of their life where he has been pushed outside the house to pursue sports, vehicles, jobs, occupations, and so on, and she's been geared toward inside the home activities. So in in both of those areas, whether we attribute the child's success to smart or hard work, and whether we tend to gift them with sports equipment or dolls and dishes, all of that becomes pretty significant as they get older in the beliefs that they develop about where they need to be spending their time and where they need to downplay their time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, that just reiterates the same pattern over and over again. And um, it makes it hard to break out 
from that because the kids have been just taught from a very young age. So by the time you grow up, you're just like, well, this is this is all that you know. It's what seems natural. It's what seems right. right. And I think that that's a big part of it, like what you just said there about it just seems natural. After you've had decades of this channeling, um, likely, well, I can't say likely because I haven't seen the research, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if you did some sort of a poll where you looked at women and men and which one of you would be more comfortable, for instance, if you got laid off and had to stay at home or how, how which ones of you would be more comfortable if they were a worldwide pandemic that required you work from home. We might indeed find that women would take that easier than men. I don't know. But if we did find that, I think a lot of people then would say, well, it's just this natural inclination. Women just naturally like this when really it's not so much about what's natural as it is that we've had all of these subtle socialization patterns that have been going on since someone said it's a boy or it's a girl. Mm-hmm. And, but, but, you know, gendered socialization can really feel like something that's natural if it's been subtle and if it's been, if it's been, if you've been exposed to it throughout your entire life. Mm-hmm. Well, ha- having seen the sort of damage that this does, or at least the the, the inequalities that it leads to, um, obviously it's very easy to point out the problem. It's it's a whole lot different and a lot harder <laughs> to, to actually start to fix it. Um, and, and there's this, you know, there's this, the societal level that our institutions need changing uh, there's the personal mm-hmm. level. It's what I what I do as an individual. There's everything else in between, how I react as a parent, as a pastor, um, and, and so on. So where do we begin? Once we've, once we've acknowledged the problem, once we see there is a problem, where do we begin in the process of overcoming? That is really a good question. And whenever I, whenever I started writing the book, I knew I could write the first half because I've taught this material, and I had already done a lot of the research for the class that I teach on gender studies. But I, and of course, I do talk about things that we can do, but I knew that I was going to have to do a lot more research. And I was a little bit worried that I wouldn't have as many answers as I did pointing out, you know, what the problems are. But then I think, okay, but I really need to include this. And so I did a lot of research and I was really surprised at how much is out there already, how much research has been done on what we can do. And so one thing that I always encourage my students to do, and I brought out in the book too, is to start thinking about the ways that you've been socialized. I'll have my students very often to stop and think about the toys that were in their room when they were a child, the kind of encouragement or discouragement that they got for doing well giving a speech to stop to think about what reaction I think when I grow up, I want to be a teacher. I think when I grow up, I would love to be a doctor or I would love to be an astronaut or, you know, whatever their dreams were. Did someone tell you you could do it or buckle and not bring it up again? You know, what, what did people do. So what I want my students to do and what I'm encouraging people as they read the book is to stop with every section that you read and stop to put thought 
to whether or not that socialization applied to you. And I've had a lot of people who've told me as they've read the book that, oh, my gosh, that happened to me. And, and I, I never thought about that being socialization, but it was. And so that's, that's what I that's the first step, I think, is just stopping to ask yourself, what was my experience? And then to be willing to challenge yourself to think about how it could have been different. And, for instance, if we were discouraged from going to college because we were told we weren't smart enough, well, think about, well, what grades did you make in high school? Um, Who else did you know who was at your level of grades who maybe did or didn't go on to school? And when I say that just now, I said if if someone told you not to go to school, you weren't smart enough, um, it's important to realize that even though very often our parents won't tell us that directly, they might say it, communicate it in a lot of subtle ways. Like, for instance, with one child talking to them about you need to work harder in math or you need to work harder in English because you're going to need to have that when you go to college, and the other one just, you know, letting them kind of drift on without really paying much attention to their grades in high school. Even though you might not be saying in so many words, you're not smart enough to go to college, not encouraging them to the same level could communicate that same thing. So, you know, again, just kind of going back to the subtle things and then how to overcome it, being able to give attention to those subtle things, thinking about them and challenging yourself. Were all the messages that were given to be true? And if so, what sort of evidence do I have that they're true? Looking for the evidence. And so I do a lot of that in the book is encouraging people to look at whatever evidence exists for what they were told as children. Mm-hmm. So the Being aware is a large portion of being in the process of overcoming. Just understanding what is happening can help you learn, figure yeah. out how to move forward. Uh, just to narrow in on that specifically, um, for parents, what advice would you have for parents who are trying to not fall into that, you know, boy, blue, girl, pink mentality? You know, one thing that I try to do, and I, I encourage my students, if they have children or when they have children, is to stop and ask yourself, if you are saying this to your son, stop, pause for a moment, and just ask yourself, if I said this to my daughter, how would that sound? And if you yourself saying something to your son or daughter that you would feel a little uncomfortable saying to the other one, that could be your first red flag, that maybe what you're doing here is a bit, that it's, it's likely to channel them in a gender direction. Mm-hmm. And so, like, for instance, um, your child is thinking about what they want for their birthday, and they, they can't come up with something. And so you ask your daughter, well, would you like a new um, set of dishes for your doll? How would you like to um, have dance lessons? Um, if Would you feel as comfortable suggesting that to your son if he were having a hard time coming up with a gift? And if not, then you're evidently not following along gendered lines and you're more likely to be giving your children the opportunity for both. I have a friend actually who I interviewed for the book and she told me that she had a little girl 
she has a little girl, and that she says she's bought her dolls for her birthday and Christmas, as, as have other people. And she said, you know, I'm a little uncomfortable with the fact that she's a little girl and that I buy her dolls. And then she stopped herself and she said, but you know what? When I have a son, if I ever have a son, I will gladly buy him dolls, too. And so that really answered her question that, sure, buy your girl a doll. There's nothing wrong with that. Buy your little boy a basketball if you want to. It's just that ask yourself, would I be equally willing to buy my son a doll? Or if my daughter is great at sports, will I encourage her in that? And I think that if you do that, you've really come a long way in being able to bypass some of the problems that a lot of parents have. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I think of, of my own kids, my, my two kids are, are young. They're four and three and about 18 months apart. And when my daughter, who's the younger one, uh, began to like grow out of her onesies, and obviously uh-huh. all, all of a sudden everyone is gifting her dresses. You know, she gets to wear <laughs> right. dresses everywhere. And my son is like, oh, I want to wear a dress. And uh, uh-huh. yeah. it was one of those things where we're like, yeah, we'll buy you, you know, we'll buy you a dress. You and your sister yeah. can match. Uh-huh. And I I could do that logically but there was still something inside of me that took a long time for me to be like you know to not (laughs) not just inside to you know be like Uh this this is wrong this you know or not even not even wrong it just it just left me with this impression of like well that's not normal and then it kind of turned into like well maybe normal isn't what we need and (laughs) right um, yeah, normal's probably highly overrated. <laughs> yeah, the way the way that we have done things and the way that we have uh, it, it's not working. So it's it's good to move forward for that. Another right. context that I wanted to talk about uh, was the church. What 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 role can the church play in ensuring equality? I think one important thing that the church can do is just to stop and assess who's doing what. When we have someone get up and speak at church, is it always a man or is it a woman sometime, a man sometime? Whenever we look for people to teach a high school class or an adult class or a children's class, do we stick pretty much with women teaching the little kids? And as they get older, it's more and more, um, more and more staffed by men. Who plans the church potluck or stays in the nursery? And I think sometimes if we just stop and assess it, at least what I'm hearing from churches, that even churches that already see themselves as being fairly egalitarian, they don't have any complaint with women doing anything they're called to do. They're still finding that the jobs at their church are held by a man that some of the jobs are held by a man, some are held by a woman, and it's pretty much going along gendered lines. Mm-hmm. And some churches have been heard from people at different churches who are very perplexed by that. And one of the things I bring out in my book that are very egalitarian, the same socialization that has affected all of us has affected them too. And so even though they do truly believe that a woman can preach, if she's led to preach, will very often still have a longer list of men to contact, to fill in, or to apply for to be a pastor, or to come on a Wednesday night to do a special Bible study on such and such topic. And so whenever we ask them, 
will assess what you're doing. And maybe it will be harder for you to find a woman to fill the pulpit on this day or that day. Make that effort. And so that's one thing I think churches can do is assess where And if they find that they're leaning one way or the other, then try to correct that. Um, ask teenage boys to stay in the nursery as often as you do teenage girls. Or ask a woman to come and lead a Bible study or to give some sort of a presentation on some. It might be a little bit more difficult to, um, you might have to do a little more legwork to find people, but it'll be worth it because you'll have little girls in the congregation who now know that, oh, I could stand up behind a pulpit and do that. Or you'll have a little boy saying, well, my We just stretch ourselves and try to take ourselves outside of what might have become our comfort zone, then I think everybody's going to benefit. Yeah, yeah. So last question for you, then I'll let you go. Uh, This is is the kind of area where where we've made a lot of progress in the past Mm -hmm. 20 years. Like if you go back and you read some of the old, you know, like Tamala Hay Christian marriage books from the 1960s or whatever – uh, it's very, right. very regimented gender roles, very regimented expectations. Uh, as you reflect on the progress that we've made, what do you hope will see change in the next 10 or 20 years? Oh, I hope so much that we're going to be seeing more and more women going into professions that have typically been, been I hate to say reserved for men. It's not so much that they're reserved for men, but that men tend to, tend to dominate. And so I think for us to see more and more girls who are going to college and who are majoring in some of the sciences and math and engineering, the STEM, the science, technology, engineering, and math occupations, that would be just wonderful because that would show that they're going with their talent rather than what, our culture has told them they need to do. And likewise, I think for us to see men who are comfortable going into occupations that have been traditionally occupied by women, like, for instance, early childhood education, elementary school teaching, nursing, and so on. I think that that will just show progress, that people are going with their natural talents rather than the way they have been socialized. Well, Dr. Howell, I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your day to be on the podcast. Again, the book is Buried Talents, Overcoming Gendered Socialization to Answer God's Call. It is an academic work. It is published by IVP Academic, but it is still very accessible. It's very readable, uh, and it's very understandable to help you and very practical as well. So don't don't get thrown off by the fact that it's by an academic imprint. Uh, This is a book for everyone, and this is something, especially if you are in a position of leadership, Uh, within the church or outside of the church, uh, it's going to help you understand what you can do to help um, eliminate this inequality that is currently so prevalent in our culture. And hopefully then we can, we can come together as, as, um, as a united humanity and um, ensure that everyone is flourishing. Can I ask everyone too, to um, check out my website, SusanHarrisHowell.com. And see what you can find there that might be of interest.